I asked for a bigger platform some years ago and uh, people laughed at me in America and said, you'll never get on national TV. Check. You'll never make a success of this. Check. You can't write a book about it, surely. Check. And I have a huge platform now where I can, we, we, we work with alcoholics and then we have to work with the wives if it's a guy uh, and we get the family well. From the suburbs of Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland, welcome to Pelham Place. Casual conversations with some of the most interesting people in the world whose stories and experiences will help you live, learn, and grow. Here's your host, Jay Pelham. Dr. Rob Kelly runs a successful alcohol and addiction recovery program, but he hasn't always been the success that he is today. In fact, as he tells it in his book, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking, he had to go to hell and back to become the man he is today. There's not much more I can say other than to welcome a man who is sometimes called the Gordon Ramsay of the addiction world and has an amazing story to share. Dr. Rob Kelly, welcome. Hey, Jay. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. Should be good. Absolutely. Dr. Rob, thanks for uh, taking the time out this evening to chat with us. Uh, I will really just want to jump right into your story, uh, a story that starts out with you earning your PhD from Oxford University, happily married, two beautiful daughters, a successful business. And then something happened, sent you down a, a pretty dark path. And uh, I think probably best to just let you take over from there. Yeah. So finished college, went straight into the police force. I'm, I'm a heavy drinker, guys, who's listening. I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, which puts another twist on my story. Um, but I didn't know anything about alcoholism, neither did my family, so we didn't really talk about it. But um, I started in the police force, got fired from there for being drunk after about four or five months, um, set my own telecommunications company up way before the cell phones, was building uh, army and navy masts for the radio telecommunications. All went well, drinking every day, didn't think I had a drinking problem. And you, you have to imagine uh, that I came from a council estate, which is like the projects over here. So didn't come from a great background, come from a loving background, but there wasn't much money around. And my, my, my sister and my brother were pretty cool through their lives of doing the nine to five, you know, buying a small house and, and having children. But that wasn't for me. I didn't think I wanted to be bigger and better. There was just something in me that was embarrassed about living on the projects. And all my friends were living on private estates, which back in England, are, you know, the, where you buy your own house. And, you know, I always felt shamed of where I come from. So I always wanted to be better. So I did. I started the telecom company. We were taking, within 12 months, we're doing over a million dollars uh, in sales. So I was eventually allowed to buy that house on the hill and the Porsches and Bentleys and, and stuff like that. Uh, still drinking. Had uh, two children. Had the first child. It's interesting fun. So everyone's telling me you're drinking too much. And always my reply was, look what I provide. Look at the amount of money. Look how you lived. Wifey, you know, you shouldn't be moaning at me. But when we had our first child, I did say to my wife that when the child was born, I was, I will swear I, I will never drink again from the moment she's born. So we went to the hospital and the, the baby was born, which is Charlotte, Charlie, we call her. Um, and I, I swore there and then I wouldn't touch alcohol. I probably lasted four hours or so before I was drunk again. Still didn't think I had a problem. Just, hey, I've got to celebrate. I can't help it. So I went to the bar and 
you know, left my wife uh, at the hospital with baby. They used to keep you in overnight in those days. And then uh, keep drinking, keep drinking, everything I thought was going good. And uh, we had the second baby. Now I'm being serious. Now I want to be the dad that I always wanted to be. So I took a Bible. In fact, I think I took two Bibles to the hospital. And I placed both hands on when my second daughter was born. And I swore to God, my wife and the two children, that I'd never touch alcohol again. Worst six hours of my life. I guess that's all I lasted. Still didn't think I had a problem. So that just went on and on with some terrible things happening in that house due to my alcoholism <clears throat> and some a lot of hurt and pain that I inflicted on people. I often say today, when people ask me about alcoholism, first of all, it's the only self-diagnosed illness in the world. And secondly, it's a contagious disease. I infected everybody that I came into contact with and life wasn't great. It just went down and down and down from there. So I, I, I'm thinking about an, an earlier episode that I had uh, here on Pelham Place with uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Brett McCabe. We spoke at length about hitting rock bottom. At what point did you get to your rock bottom and what was it that made you realize that something had to change? It was, it was, it was to the bitter end with me, unfortunately. I remember when I, uh, I unfortunately, in, in a drunken episode, uh, stabbed my wife three times one night uh, because she wouldn't let me finish my bottle of vodka. This is how serious this disease is. I called the ambulance. Uh, as soon as I heard the sirens in the background, I jumped into a waiting cab and I fled to Spain and wouldn't come back until she she told her attorney to sign a document to say that she wouldn't press charges. So when I came back home, the very hour I came at home, she was waiting for me. And when I got there, she had all the cases packed. And she, she said to me, I love you till you die, Rob, but you're not going to kill me or the kids. And she took my babies, ages one and three, and she left the house. But I was furious, as you can imagine. So I got hold of my attorney, who we do a lot of business with, and kind of threatened him that if he didn't get my children back the next day through going to court, I wouldn't do business with him anymore. So next day at 10 o'clock, they, they, they knock at the door and there's my two girls. So I remember bringing them in, paying off the attorney 10,000 pounds or something crazy and sat him in front of the TV. Now, I went into the kitchen, Jay, and I said, wouldn't it be great to have one beer to celebrate at getting my children back? And so I did. Three days later, when the police kicked the door down, because I was in oblivion, and the children had not been changed diapers or fed for two days, um, they took them off me forever. The youngest one I've never seen since. So you would think that that was enough. In actual fact, my eldest daughter, uh, at ages three, maybe four, I can't remember, uh, she said three things as the mom, her mommy was taking her down the path, escorted by the police. And she says, Daddy, Daddy, please don't go. And then she says, Daddy, Daddy... Uh, please get better. And the last thing she said to me was, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. Uh, and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So I went back into the house and I started drinking again, heavily this time, pints of vodka. And within six months, the houses have gone, the cars have gone, the wife and the kids have gone. I went to my parents who threw me out after two or three days because of my alcoholism. I went to friends, from friends to acquaintances, from acquaintances to the streets. Now I'm living out of a cardboard box in the center of town, Manchester Piccadilly Gardens. 
I'm sleeping on the trees. I'm begging every day for alcohol. I'm stealing alcohol. I'm beating people up for alcohol, especially drunk people. It was horrendous. About 14 months later, still on the streets, horrific time, fighting every day for my life. Um, I dropped down to my knees one day. It was about 2.30 in the morning on the back streets of Manchester, pouring down with rain, cold. I had no alcohol left. And I started to cry like a baby from my stomach. And I was knelt down. And as the, as the rain hit the back of my head, it come round my face. It mixed with my tears and my sobbing. And it hit these pebbled stones that looked like purple when it hit it. And I was done. Now, I stopped. Well, the reason why I was crying is not because I'd lost my children or my wife or my houses and cars and parents and sister and brother. The first time I realized in my life that I couldn't stop drinking. And it took all of that to make me realize that the alcohol had finally beat me. And I was absolutely done. I tried suicide six times on two occasions. It succeeded. But somebody brought me back to life on two occasions. So I was just a broken, desperate, lonely man. Whew. That takes I, a lot out of you, man. Just, yeah, just it does. to, it does. just to hear that story, um, takes a lot out of you. It, to, to live it, I can't even imagine. What, it, what kind of treatment? How, how did you, how did you start the journey into recovery? What kind of treatment did you go through? I, I know that you are you today have a very unique practice and a very unique philosophy. What did, what did you experience and how does your current philosophy differ from, from how you were treated? I've been into many treatment centers that my parents paid and I paid. So this kind of freaks a few people out and probably you Jay as well, but here's what happened. So I'm crying and I looked up to the sky and I said, if there is a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. And I was sobbing when I said it. I still get upset now all these years later. Uh, 30 seconds later, on the back end of Manchester, nobody about 2.30 in the morning, this guy walks around the corner. has a little Bible in his hand. He says, can I help you? And I says, I'm dying. I need help. And he said, come on, I'm an alcoholic and a Christian. I'll take you back to my house. You can change. We'll feed you. I'll look after you. So that's where it kind of started, but that wasn't it. So I went back to his house. He let me bathe, showered, went to sleep, got up next morning. He made his breakfast. And he said, Rob, somebody helped me when I was sick. So I want to help you. You can stay here for as long as you like. Uh, you don't have to pay anything. We'll, we'll, we'll eat three times a day uh, just on one condition. And I said, what's the condition? He said, you come to uh, a 12-step meeting with me. Oh, man, I'd been there before. This whole war stories. I hate them. But it was a dry bed for the night. So I went alone the next night and sat down. And sure enough, all the war stories and the moaning started. And I'm sat there thinking, well, at least it's a bed, a dry bed. And about halfway around, this is, it's in a circle in, in Manchester. Halfway around the circle, this man said, my name's John, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I thought to myself, my goodness, I've never heard anybody say I'm a recovered alcoholic before. So after the meeting, I went over to him and I asked him what he sponsored me. And he said, no, but I will be a spiritual advisor for a period of 12 weeks, which I thought was crazy at the time. 
So he gave me his address. And every Wednesday evening <clears throat> around 7 p.m., I'd leave at 6, got there for 7 p.m. We studied an hour uh, in, in a book, in uh, the Bible, in, in philosophy, in psychology. I mean, he taught me a great deal. We did that for 12 weeks every Wednesday, an hour there, an hour with him, an hour back. And he'd have me reading and marking stuff off. And he taught me a lot of stuff. After 12 weeks, I walked out of that man's house and knew that if I continued to work the program that he'd shown me, I would never drink alcohol again. I knew I'd found something special. I knew this John was something special. He told me that God will look after me and guide the way and my life would change from tomorrow. That's what he told me. He said, go around the world and guarantee people can recover from this disease. And I'm like, I mean, I'm in this guy's bedroom. I don't really know. I, I, can't, I haven't got the finances to do that. And he will say, just do it. So I went home the next day. And uh, the day after that, somebody offered me a part-time job out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And then it turned into a full-time job. Somebody last week, uh, next week, gave me a car that I could get to work and back. So my first, so every, all, everything in my life was just changing. And I was going around meetings, you know, showing everybody what, what I'd found and people getting well. So after two weeks, I got my first paycheck. So I bought him a little teddy bear, John, and a little card. And I, I did the same walk back again. When I got to the apartment, there was nobody there. So I was knocking on the door like loud. I thought we must have moved. The next, the right-hand side lady came out and she says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, can you tell me where John's relocated to? And she said, John. I said, yeah. She says, there's been no one in that apartment for three months that I know of. So I let her close the door. She's obviously insane. Poor girl, all drunk. So when she closed the door and the lights went off, I went around to the left-hand side. Now I'm a little nervous, so I'm knocking on this guy's door harder than I should. And he comes to the door and opens the door quick. And he said, can I help you? And I said, yes. Can you tell me where John's moved to next door? And he said, what next door? I said, this house here, to your right, to your left. And he said, you've got the wrong apartment. And I went to close the door and I said, whoa, hang on a second. What do you mean I've got the wrong apartment? And he said, and I quote, there's, there, I've been here for years. There's been no one in that apartment for 12 months. It's kind of derelict. Nobody's lived there. You have the wrong address. I didn't have the wrong address. So I let him close the door. So the next night, I went back to the meeting where I found him. And I spoke to the chairman. I said, remember about 12, 13 weeks ago, I was in here, guy with the white hair. He said, white hair? I said, yeah, John. He spoke in the meeting. John. I said, I was over near the coffee machine speaking to him after the meeting. And he says, oh, nice one, Rob. Funny. I said, funny what? You was over near the coffee machine speaking to yourself, Rob. Never found that guy. But my program is based on what he taught me and shown me. And uh, never found him since. And that was the story of how, how wow. I created this amazing program that has a 97% success rate to date, where other people have 3 and 4% success rate. And uh, I guarantee people can recover like he told me to. He told me, God, this is a message from God. And I thought, oh, my, he's loopy, obviously. But he told me. He said, I'm going to take you around the world. And then he said, yeah, God said he's going to take you around the world. And God said, you've got to guarantee everyone can recover. Like, oh, okay. And he said something like, remember Isaiah 61. I, I had no idea about the Bible. I was in the choir for about four weeks, but that was it. But when I got over here, because I came for two weeks only, I met a guy who, as soon as he met me, he just looked at me and he said, we've been waiting for you. And I'm like, waiting for me what? I didn't know this guy. It was my, my first, uh, second wife's boss. And he said, no, we've just been waiting for you. Just 
come to the group, come to this church group with us. It's not normal church. We do this. And I said, okay. So as I'm walking out of the door of the office, I turned around and I said, Hardy, what's the name of your group? The, the church group. And he said, we call ourselves Isaiah 61. Hmm. And that's when I knew I was meant to be here. Wow. Mm. So it sounds like you were uh, almost chosen yes. for that path. That, as you know, it took me years. In fact, the only last two years, I would say yes to that question. It was always, no, don't be silly. But there's too many things in my life that's happened to me where I should have died after stopping drinking it in America. That hasn't, the cancer, had cancer. It went over, like in about four hours, it, it disappeared. You know, uh, they killed me in, in a, a medication overdose in the hospital. And they found me in time and they brought back to life. There's just too many things happening. So the answer to that question is yes, I truly believe so. I really believe. And I asked for a bigger platform some years ago. And uh, people laughed at me in America and said, you'll never get on national TV. Check. You'll never make a success of this. Check. You can't write a book about it, surely. Check. And I have a huge platform now where I can, we, we, we work with alcoholics and then we have to work with the wives if it's a guy uh, and we get the family well. And uh, we stay with them for nights, a 90 day program, one hour a day via telehealth. Uh, and that's that's what we do, and it's very exciting, and we're very busy, and we're saving lives on a daily basis. And again, it took me a long time to say that, to, to admit that, but that's what we do. That's what I, I do on my team. That is that is amazing. Um, mm. you, you, you're definitely doing great work. And I have two more questions that really that I really wanted to talk to you about. One that's more of just a personal interest. And another one that I think is really relevant to current times. So here's the deal. I'm really curious about this. And I, I was curious back last March when the pandemic hit. Now here we are at the end of the, the pandemic. But at the very beginning, and I think you know where I'm going with this, liquor stores and the sales of alcohol was basically deemed as essential right off the bat. And I, I'm sure that everybody has a different opinion on this. Um, you know, the stress of the pandemic mixed with, uh, you know, personal limitations and restrictions <coughs> and a blatant promotion of alcohol consumption just seems like the perfect storm for oh, yeah. an alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what's your take on that? What is there any data I mean, is it too early to have data that that has resulted from the pandemic and what the effect on uh, alcoholics is? Well, we have to look, first of all, at the alcohol sales, which went up by 64 percent in Texas alone. So all of a sudden that went crazy. Secondly, uh, you, you can't drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic. We're born this way, predisposition. It's in the family somewhere. But what we can do is we can abuse alcohol. And I think once once people start to isolate those people who like to drink, you know, probably not during the week because they've got to turn up at the office, that started to kick off. Alcoholics went crazy. Uh, and uh, everyone started losing their mind for a bit because you have to understand the mind. You have to understand how the brain works, which I study. That's my speciality in neuroplasticity and neural pathways and the development of and remaps of birth and trauma. That's, that's my deal. That's how I get people well amongst other things. But the way the mind works is one of the worst things you can do to a human being is isolate them. 
And the second worst thing you can do is say, you can't leave this area, whether that be a jail cell or a 10,000 square foot mansion. It makes no difference. The brain doesn't say that. It says we can't go. So let me tell you real quick about a story back in Manchester many years ago is there was a woman, a lady, uh, 19 years old, who got snatched up the side of the road and they started to look for her and couldn't find it. Nine months went by, nothing. Police officers following a car down the road, a signal lights broken, they pull him over. Uh, they search his car, you don't need a warrant, or didn't then in England, found a stolen screwdriver. So they go back to the house, because you're allowed to go back to the house and see what else this guy's stolen. And they found other stolen goods. And then they found a, a huge box in the corner, probably 12 foot wide by four foot. And he said, what's in the box? And he, he just looked scared as if there was loads of stolen stuff in there. So they opened the box and there was the girl that was snatched off the street nine months ago. He used to take her out and abuse her, and feed her and put her back for nine months. So they opened it up. She was alive. She was battered, but she was breathing and she could see what was happening. So the police officer went in and got hold of hand and helped her step out of the box. She took a coat off her and she wrapped it around the girl. What's the first thing she did? People ask when she got back in the box is what she did. And it's the same thing with the isolation with COVID is people are so used to being in that box now that going outside isn't normal anymore. Then we're walking around with masks on. So the identity of other people, which we need to see as human beings has gone because everybody looks the same. So there's huge damage done uh, to the central nervous system and the brain and the persona and the spiritual side, huge damage done there, which we're not going to see for another five to 20 years. But the, the, the immediate effect is we only take on four patients. That's our limit at four patients. I'm a concierge doctor, nothing. We have 20 patients right now and that's all overspilled from COVID. Wow. Mm. So there is a huge problem. Suicides went up. Drug uses went up. It's just, we're not used to this. You know, we, 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 I mean, look at America. I became a citizen only six months ago. So I'm very proud to be a citizen. But when, when people are telling you not to leave a certain area and stay there, the land of the free then becomes the land of the confined. And that's what messes with the brain. We, we did a research on death row and something like, 90% of people on death row, first of all, didn't recognize the, the, uh, the, the act that they did because they were high on drugs or alcohol. But secondly, 90% of them were insane before they actually went to the death because of the isolation. Wow. That impact yeah. is, is <coughs> yeah. it's huge. Um, yeah. You know, I, it's funny. It, well, it's not funny, but I had a, uh, a just a, a regular doctor's appointment a couple of months into the pandemic and, you know, it was right around lunchtime. And, you know, of course it was a video appointment and my doctor was, you know, kind of eating lunch at the same time. We were just casual chatting. And he, uh, you know, he mentioned the, the fact that alcohol was essential and, and yeah. he, he <laughs> almost made light of the fact that f at, from a doctor's perspective, because they were so limited to people coming into the doctor's office that it was almost better for the alcohol to be available to the alcoholic yeah. instead of them going without and then going to into withdrawals because they couldn't be treated as well. Yeah, that's so true because what people don't realize is 
there are more people suffering and addicted and, and abuse alcohol than you think. Everybody knows somebody who has a problem with alcohol. And I usually say, if you don't, and it's probably you, everybody does. We don't realize how much, how much uh, alcohol that we're being consumed every day, every single day. When people come out of work, they need a drink to get through the day. Dad gets home from eight o'clock from a 12-hour shift. Oh, he needs a few whiskeys before he goes to bed. If you stop that, all hell would break loose. They would be rioting. People would be breaking in, just like prohibition, breaking in stores because they can't go without it, let alone the, the weight on our health system as alone, like you just said, with withdrawals, you know, can kill the alcoholic. So we're really talking about, you know, past the triage, get straight into, straight into help, you know, because um, it, it could be a matter of an hour or two before you're dead from that once you go into DTs and then the body starts uh, fitting yeah, it's, it's very, very dangerous. So I wasn't surprised when they said uh, that it was an essential business, but a lot of people were worse surprised. But not if you see the world from where I've seen it from. You know, it's, uh, alcohol does a lot of damage to every family in the world, period. Definitely. That's just the way it is. But we don't, nobody sees that, you know? Nobody Absolutely. sees that. And then when the, when the children go on to be isolated to the phones and then they start drinking, everyone goes, well, what's wrong with Sally? I mean, she was a great girl. No, you don't remember Sally. Remember when your dad used to come in drunk? He used to hide in the corner in case she got battered by father who has no idea what he's doing because he's in a blackout, but punches mom anyway. That's how Sally's doing, but people don't want to hear that. And that's why the trauma of our teenagers going forward is going to be absolutely horrific to alcohol abuse, trauma, and cell phones. Wow. You're, you're absolutely right. hundred um, percent. Want to switch gears a little bit? Yeah, come on. Let's talk music. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so I read on your website just earlier today. Uh, I don't know how I missed this uh, in, in the last few months uh, that we've been planning, planning this interview, but uh, you played bass guitar at, Abbey Road Studio with Queen, David Bowie, Elton John. Come on, man. I know. <laughs> well, it, it goes back. I have the alcoholic brain. I have, if I'm going to do something, I do it. So I'm, I'm on stage at the age of nine playing bass with bands. And then at the age of f 13, 14, I work at my local uh, studio called Strawberry Studios, which is owned by 10CC. Um, to do radio jingles. Remember in the days when you had to play the instrument, not yep. just tap on a keyboard? <laughs> so I did that, and I'm sat in the break room one day between sessions, and I opened Melody Maker, which is a, a, a British music magazine, and I've seen a, a position for bass player, so I applied for it. It's like, I'm, I'm drinking, I'm doing good, but I've got a lot of confidence as a kid because this bass guitar was strapped around me 24 hours a day. You know, my mom will tell you, just like everywhere, I went to the restroom, so I was pretty good, and I went for the audition. I had seven auditions for that um, position because they were all seasoned bass players, and I got it. I, I got the job. So uh, you never forget things like when when uh, Freddie Mercury calls the studio and says, I want Rob Kelly to come and play bass with me at 2 o'clock in the morning. You never forget stuff like that. So, yeah. And, and I'm guessing sessions. that Rob Kelly says, okay, I'll go. <laughs> oh, hell, I'm halfway there by the time they said it. But yeah, it was just, it was fun. You see, I, I, I like to have fun in life. You know, even when I was drinking, it was still just have fun. So we had long talks and sessions into the night with Fred, me and Freddie. Freddie sat on a, uh, you know, the chair somewhere in the studio when everyone has gone home. And uh, he was just absolutely, he used to call me Robbie Darling. 
is what he used to call me. And he was phenomenal. David Bowie, absolutely amazing guy. Plenty of others that I can't mention for legal reasons. But uh, Elton John, let me talk about Elton John for a second. So Grelton John's great. He's a musician. He's a phenomenal performer. But don't get Elton John in a bad mood. So <clears throat> we finished the session early one in, in uh, Abbey Road. And it was a horrible, stormy, windy, rainy night. And for some unknown reason, the generators, uh, the electricity went off. The generators would come in like a millisecond behind it, but it would affect the recording. So we did about six or seven of these. And, and he said, no, nah, let's call it. So me, Elton, the manager, four or five girls, uh, lead guitar player, a drummer, I don't know who was there. We all went back to the Savoy Hotel in London. At one point back in the 70s and 80s, the Savoy Hotel was one of the most prestigious hotels in the world. So we goes up to the penthouse suite and we're all having fun. There's everything you can imagine on tables everywhere. And I, it's how crazy them days were. I hear Elton in his bedroom and he's screaming at the top of his voice. So I thought, I wonder if he needs help. I don't know. Let me go in. So I walked in. I said, what's going on? And he's talking on the phone. It turns out he's talking on the phone to the receptionist and the manager. And he's saying to them, if you don't stop the rain and the wind right now, I will never come into this hotel again. They were the crazy days with them, guys. It was just phenomenal. <laughs> Absolutely phenomenal. That is so funny. That is awesome. That... Wow. Uh, I mean, I can't even imagine being around, uh, you know, those those guys in in such a casual manner. Um, oh, yeah. It, I mean, that's what it, is. it was just that. Jay. It was casual manner. But about the, uh, two years later, they were doing a tour and um, the league, the, their guitarist, they always have a second guitarist behind Brian May playing the, the block chords. He was sick with the flu. So they brought the extra, extra guitarist in, but they called me and said, hey, can you come and back up the guitarist that's playing just in case? So I said, yeah, it was in Manchester, like two miles from my house. So I went there, backstage passes got in. It turned out that the, because you have to be fit on stage. Everyone thinks you go on stage. You can do in the early days, but when you start honing your music and you do a stage for you have to be fit. And it turns out that the second guitarist wasn't as fit as he wasn't stage fit. So I actually took over while he got a breath and some water and, and something to eat. I actually walk on stage with a guitar room and, 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 prayed, and played Radio Gaga in front of 100,000 people. Yeah. That's when they all clap in the hair. It was just, I never forget that sight. It, it was just phenomenal to see all them people. And the, and the fact that this man from India, this man who couldn't really speak good English, big teeth, gawpy looking guy, could hold a hundred thousand people in the palm of his hand. Yep. And that's always intrigued me because when people say, you know, who's your hero? Would you like to sit down with lunch or dinner with? Sometimes I say Hitler and people go, what? I said, no, no, you're missing the point. I'm talking about psychological. How did he get all them people to follow him? How did Freddie Mercury get all them people in the park? Things like that intrigue me. Because you can go on Facebook and be there for two years and get two followers. It's like, how can you get millions of people follow you? Because he was a showman to the end. He really was. When you stood near the tunnel, when he was ready to go on with everybody, you know, he'd be jumping up and down. He'd be doing his breathing. And everybody was hyped up, ready to go. Anybody out there could have walked. Even the, the roadman could have walked on and did that gig. 
because everybody was on, you know, in that great mood with him. So yeah, phenomenal guy, phenomenal experience. Phenomenal. And you're only, you're, you're one of just a handful of people, handful of people that have been able to not only experience being in his presence, but to share a stage with the man I know. and to, to <laughs> feel what it feels like to have a hundred thousand people screaming back oh, at you, yeah. singing the lyrics yeah. to the song that you're playing. Uh, that, that just, that's gotta be an amazing feeling. And I, I never thought this before. It's just come to me now, but where we played was called main road. It was Manchester city's stadium. And my dad was a huge fan and used to take me there as a kid. Uh, so yeah, that was a stadium we played at. That is awesome. So cool. Dr. Rob, and thank you so much for taking the time today. This was this was a lot of fun. Uh, it was great to, uh, to to learn more about your story and what you're doing to help people now. And of course, the music I mean, music is is life. And uh, just to to be a part of of that history is is an amazing part of your story. Thanks again for telling it. And you want to take this time to just tell tell the listeners where they can find out more about you. Yeah, so my name's Dr. Rob Kelly, R-O-B-B-K-E-L-L-Y, spell it with two Bs for Bravo. So robkelly.com is the website. Any search engine, put Dr. Rob Kelly in with two Bs and up I'll come. All the social media's out there. Uh, there's also, we do a podcast every Friday. We have some great guests on, but there's also a book out there for, in Walmart and Amazon, and it's Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. And the only reason why I mention that, because believe it or not, we don't do this for the money, is not the profits, but all the proceeds into that book go out to local communities and in America and some in England as well, where I used to live. So we give a lot of money away to charity. We we employ a lot of people and we will give spot gifts. We give a $4,000 car away two weeks ago. Uh, so that that's where that money goes. It's not as if we take anything out, but it is a great read. You'll smile, you'll cry, you'll laugh, uh, and uh, you'll be sad. But uh, it's a great journey, not only for the alcoholic, but the family of. And uh, if you do get it and read it, uh, let me know what you think about it. Absolutely. And one more thing. What's the name of the podcast? The podcast is Tall, the Recovery Channel podcast on all the platforms you can imagine, about 29 of them. Every Friday, live on Facebook and YouTube, the Recovery Channel podcast at noon central time or thereabouts. And me and my... Uh, co-host jennifer lovely we'll be banging out some uh, great uh, great guests over the next couple of 12 months or so awesome dr rob thanks so much for for doing this awesome, awesome man i just knew it would be just knew it would be especially with the music connection it was, it was great absolutely thanks for listening to palom place don't forget to check out the show notes for links and resources mentioned in this episode if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends, family, and social circles. You can find Pelham Place on Instagram and Facebook at Pelham Place Show. And don't forget to subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, be kind and do good. <laughs>